Hi, I'm David Zichterman, the pastor of Emden CRC. Today's message comes from James chapter 3. James chapter 3 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. I'll also be looking at the ninth commandment, which states, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 43 says this about the ninth commandment. What is the aim of the ninth commandment? That I never give false testimony against anyone. Twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are the very devices the devil uses, and they would call down on me God's intense wrath. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. In the movie, The Wife, we meet Joseph Castleman, a famous and beloved author who wins the Nobel Prize in literature. His wife, Joan, is portrayed initially as a supporting and caring housewife who enables her husband's career. Except that from the beginning, you sense something isn't right. The Nobel Prize, which should have been a cause for celebration, raises considerable tension in their marriage. As Joseph gets praise for his writing career, Joan emotionally withdraws. At the ceremony for receiving the prize, they try to put on a good face, but it doesn't work. The cracks that had begun to show now shatter their marriage. When they met, Joseph was a professor who claimed a writer must write. The only problem, Joan quickly found out, was that Joseph was a terrible writer. He fit the expression, those who can do, those who can't teach. He couldn't write, so he taught. 
Joan, however, could write, and could, and could write brilliantly. She made her characters come alive and made stories vivid and interesting. But being a woman, she discovered that getting her literature published would be nearly impossible. So she made a deal with her husband. She would write, he would claim to be the author. It was a convenient lie. It enabled Joan to write and get published. It enabled Joseph to claim he could actually write something interesting when he clearly couldn't. It was a convenient lie. Until it wasn't. When Joseph received the Nobel Prize and Joan received no credit, it created a rupture that destroyed their marriage, strained their relationship with their kids, and ruined what should have been a celebration. Lying is dangerous. It can be so easy and convenient in the moment, and even manageable, until of course it isn't. When we lie, we break the ninth command. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. When we lie, we, we misuse our tongue. We misuse our speech and words. James wrote his third chapter to warn us against misusing our tongue. He warns us not to misuse our speech, not simply because it could blow up in our face, but because it violates our very nature as image bearers of God. As image bearers of God, we were given speech to praise God and build up one another to create a loving community. First, James warns of the criticisms we are likely to get when we misuse our tongue. And tongue used in James is a way to refer to all communication. He says in verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. As stated differently and perhaps a bit more moder modernly, a quote attributed to Abraham Lincoln puts it this way, Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. Teachers, preachers, and public speakers by the sheer amount we speak, are prone to removing any doubt of our foolishness, and we open ourselves to being critiqued and judged for what we say. I think the judgment James is talking about are these very natural judgments that we form, whether justified or not, when we hear someone speak. Rose Pastor is an example of this. Even if you don't say your critiques out loud, I'm fairly convinced you have thoughts like these from time to time. Too long, Pastor. Time to wrap this up. Or, boring. Or, that doesn't make sense. I wish you could be more clear. I think you do that because I know that I do it as well. We all stumble in many ways, James says in verse 2. But the place we stumble most consistently is in our inability to tame the tongue. Those who preach and those who teach will be critiqued most harshly for their failures of speech. But James' warning isn't just for teachers and preachers, it is for all who speak. With our speech, we have great potential for wrongdoing. With our words, we can utter little white lies. With our words, we can make ourselves appear better than we are. With our words, we can cut others down and destroy relationships. We stumble in many ways, but we all stumble consistently through our words. So we need to tame the tongue. Any progress in becoming more Christ-like will require that we tame the tongue and learn self-control in what we speak. It is a core spiritual discipline. 
For as we learn to discipline our speech, we also learn to control other areas of our lives. Next, James wants us to realize that the tongue is incredibly powerful. To help us understand just how powerful our words are and why it is so important that we take taming the tongue seriously, he uses three analogies. First, our speech is like the bits that are put in the mouths of horses. Verse 3, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Pastor Brady shared with me a time he visited Churchill Downs and watched the Kentucky Derby. He was amazed at these incredibly powerful animals, some weighing 1,500 pounds and reaching speeds up to 35 miles per hour, could be controlled by just 100-pound men using just a bit in a horse's mouth. A bit in a horse's mouth is usually less than a pound, and yet it can be used to steer and guide a horse. That is what the tongue is like, James tells us. It is like a bit in a horse's mouth. The tongue, though small, can steer and guide a person's entire life. James' next analogy involves a rudder. Verse 4, take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by very small rudders wherever the pilot wants to go. I only have experience with a small sailboat. It could only fit one or two people and tipped easily. When I first used it, it was easy to oversteer, catch a gust of wind, and, and capsize. But when I got the hang of it, I could use the rudder to go just about anywhere on the lake. The tongue is like that. It guides and steers our lives. It is powerful. I watched a Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving with my kids earlier this week. In this show, Peppermint Patty calls up Charlie. She informs Charlie that she was coming to his Thanksgiving dinner. Before Charlie could get in a word, she hangs up. A few minutes later, she calls again to inform Charlie she also invited her friend Marcy to come with her. When Charlie tries to object, Peppermint Patty insists it won't be a problem. They will help with cleanup. Then she hangs up. A few minutes later, she calls again. Franklin's coming too, she tells Charlie. No need to worry, just have a big turkey ready. Then she hangs up. Peppermint Patty didn't know how to keep her mouth closed. But by her words, she created expectations that were unrealistic. This is going to be the biggest bash of the year, she tells Charlie. The tongue is small, but it can make great boasts. It is like a bit in a horse. It is like a rudder on a boat. It is small but powerful. Peppermint Patty used her words to get what she wanted, Thanksgiving at Charlie's house. Through her words, she created expectations that would lead to conflict. She never even bothered to ask Charlie if it was okay for her to come over. Likewise, we use words that get ahead of ourselves to manipulate and control, to utter lies, to boast and create expectations that lead to trouble and hurt. Which brings us to James' third analogy. Our speech is like a spark that can set a whole forest on fire. Our words are on fire, filled with evil passions that come from the depths of our rotten hearts. Verse 5, the tongue is small, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. 
it corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. The boasts that we make are like a spark in a dry forest, quickly setting everything on fire. Peppermint Patty boasted about the Thanksgiving dinner she was going to get. She created impossible expectations by her boasts. The most Charlie could pull off was a meal of toast, pretzels, and popcorn. When she saw that meager meal, the spark of her boast burst into flames. Angrily, she shouted, What blockhead cooked this? Where's the turkey, mashed potatoes, and cranberry sauce? Don't you know anything about Thanksgiving dinner? Charlie, hurt by what she said, just walked away. The tongue has great power. It takes our hatred, bitterness, rage, or boasts and gives them shape. It gives our worst instincts, instincts form by giving them words. Our tongue takes the hatred buried in our hearts and allows us to speak cruelly. Our tongue takes our bitterness and gives us the crusty complaints that fill our lives. Our tongue takes our boast and allows us to make claims that are unreasonable and foolish. The tongue takes our evil desires and spits them forth like so many sparks, just waiting to catch fire in ruptured and broken relationships. Don't ignore the importance of taming the tongue, James warns. It reveals our arrogance and ignorance. By its power, we can destroy relationships. But also, James warns, don't deceive yourself. The tongue is not something you can tame by your own power. Verses 7 and 8. Creatures of this earth can be tame. Birds can be taught to talk, dogs to skip, dolphins to jump. That's a paraphrase, by the way. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Don't be deceived, James warns. Taming the tongue is necessary, but taming the tongue is also utterly beyond our ability. Verses 9 and 10 say, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we also curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. This should not be. Yet who would deny that this doesn't describe them? Pure speech is difficult. We fall short daily. With our speech, we speak falsely, twist the words of others, gossip, slander, and delight in hearing in the failures of others. All these failures of the tongue violate the ninth command. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. By our failure to tame the tongue, we daily break God's law. And what we need is grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Jesus came to us to give us that. Jesus is grace and truth, the word of God who can be trusted at all times. He came into this world declaring hope and salvation for all who would repent and believe in his name. For this message of good news, he was arrested, tortured, hauled before the Sanhedrin, and lied about. Jesus was taken before the Sanhedrin, and the high priests and teachers of the law looked for some evidence against Jesus so they could kill him. When they couldn't come up with anything, they sent some forward to give false testimony about him. They hurled false accusations against Jesus, yet Jesus remained silent. As the prophet Isaiah put it, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. 
Jesus endured those false testimonies against him, those lies, to forgive all our false words, lies, and failures to tame the tongue. The greatest lie we can now utter is that we don't need this mercy and forgiveness. We all fail to tame the tongue. Only grace can make a new way possible. And that is why Jesus came, to forgive liars like ourselves. Taming the tongue is utterly beyond our ability, but we have been forgiven and given the Holy Spirit so that we may begin to use our words to glorify God and build up one another. We have been shown mercy and given the Spirit of Christ so that our words may be like Christ. As forgiven, we can leave behind our habits of gossip and slander. We can run from our we can run from the abuses of speech we learn from the world around us. We can hold each other to a higher standard, to God's standard, revealed in his law. As receivers of God's spirit, we belong to the truth and are called to walk in the truth. This is where the positive requirements of the ninth command come in, stated in the Heidelberg Catechism. We are called to love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. In short, we are to be sincere. One of the best examples we have of sincerity, I think, can be found in Paul's letters. His sincerity comes across in the words that he wrote. He passionately defends the truth of the gospel and strongly rebukes those who try to diminish the gospel through falsehoods. But he does so with humility. Throughout his letters, Paul admits his weakness and shortcomings. He doesn't shy away from admitting that he is the worst of all sinners. That combination of frankness and humility, boldness and meekness, is the sincerity we are called to. Prayer is the great training ground for this sincerity. When we pray, we are taught to boldly come before the throne of God's grace, but also in humility, confessing our sins and need for grace. To become sincere, to learn this virtue, we must pray. The ninth commandment not only calls us to be sincere, but also to do all that we can to advance our neighbor's good name. I had a professor in seminary who called this the ministry of encouraging and edifying. Encouraging is seeing the good and naming it. It requires taking the time to notice and observe the good qualities in another person, and once seeing it, naming it. We edify when we then share that encouragement before others. For instance, I watched the movie A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood last week. It tells the story of a reporter who was assigned to write a story on Fred Rogers. The reporter, Lloyd Vogel, was at the time cranky and tired. Through his writing, he had made lots of enemies. Mr. Rogers knew this about Lloyd, but welcomed Lloyd to interview him anyways. Mr. Rogers' kindness and warmth eventually allowed Lloyd to open up about his broken relationship with his father. After listening, Mr. Roger responded, I don't think you are broken. I know you are a man of conviction, a person who knows the difference between what is wrong and what is right. Try to remember that your relationship with your father also helped to shape those parts. He helped you become what you are. Mr. Rogers right there encouraged Lloyd. He noticed something good about Lloyd, his clear conviction of right and wrong, and named it. Most of you who are listening know these things far better than I do. I feel like I'm only in preschool in this department. I still have a lot to learn about how to encourage and edify others. You in this church have progressed much further than I have, and I want to thank you 
for what you have taught me. Jesus came so that we can learn to obey the ninth command. We tame the tongue not by our own strength, but by repenting of our misuse of speech, accepting Jesus' forgiveness, and asking for the Holy Spirit to teach us the holy habits of sincerity, encouragement, and edification. Thanks for listening.